I'm Mary Retta, and this is The Backstory. Today I sat down with Sylvia A. Harvey to talk about her investigation into how the foster care system often removes parental rights from parents who have been to prison. Harvey's story followed Kenneth Clark, a father of five who lost custody of his children after being sent to prison for a failure to appear in court. She reports that of the nearly 443,000 kids in the United States foster care system today, Many are the children of currently or formerly incarcerated adults, like Clark, who are fighting hard to regain custody. But under Arkansas law, where Clark lives, foster care agencies are required to terminate parental rights after a child has lived in foster care for 12 of the last 22 months. This puts many incarcerated parents on a near-impossible timeline for regaining custody of their children, even after they're released. Harvey's story follows Clark from his original detainment to the present day, chronicling his anger, frustration, and hope that he might one day be reunited with his children. Could you speak a little bit about why you wanted to report on this story and how Clark's story in particular came to you and why you wanted to focus on Clark specifically? I think the idea was, you know, we have this federal legislation that is essentially... um, an arbitrary timeline for families that are caught up in the child welfare system. Right. And just hearing that people, parents, were having their children removed from their home and permanently taken away, I just, I was just like, that's not possible. Like, it just could not be happening, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that when you're not, like, working specifically in the space of child welfare, so many things can be taken place that you aren't particularly um, familiar with. You don't know what's going on until someone tells you, hey, you actually, you know, can take your children after a certain amount of time. And so for me, that was that was just really shocking. Um, and I wanted to know, like, when is this happening? Where is this happening? Why is this happening? And how is this impacting the families? Um, and what what do we need to be doing instead of um, sort of taking people's children away, right? So I think those were the original uh, thoughts, kind of like, what does it mean to be caught in the child welfare system? What does it mean to be dealing with the Adoption of Safe Families Act, which says that if you have a child in foster care for uh, 15 of the most recent 22 months, the local child welfare agency can file for a termination of parental rights. So, you know, I originally started looking into mothers uh, and was working with a woman in Arkansas, uh, Deanna Well, and she worked inside the jails there. And she said, you know, I work with a lot of mothers that, you know, doing a parenting program. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking how many women are losing their children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we worked to try to get me into the jails and it was just, it was just too hard. Like they weren't open to having me come in and, and report on these stories. And it just happened actually that uh, Kenneth's case came along while I was in touch with Deanne. And I thought it was interesting to look at it from the perspective of a father, right? Like mm-hmm. what does it mean to be a father that has, um, you know, being put in a position where you are at risk of losing your children, 
right? What does it mean to be incarcerated and then not have any contact with the Department of Human Services to know where your children are? What does it mean to be released and still not be able to get connected to your children? And I just think that we, we think so much about parenthood in these cases of child welfare that we think of the mother. And this is something that um, Deanne said to me. It's just that, you know, the way that fathers are treated is a really um, awful reflection on how we view the role of fathers and the importance of fathers. So I thought I would just illustrate a different aspect of um, parenthood and losing the right to your children. Sort of building on that, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about what it was like to talk to Clark over the course of reporting your story, because he gave you a lot of, you know, personal details. And I was just wondering if you could speak to how you went about building trust with him um, and whether he was comfortable sort of going on record with his real name and giving all those details. So first I was introduced to him through someone that he'd already um, had started to establish a relationship with. So Deanne Noel was someone that he... Uh, was working with, she'd taken him on as a client and said, you know, let's do, let's do the work. So she had already been in touch with me. She knew what my intentions were. She'd seen my previous work. So she thought that it would be important um, for him to have a conversation with me, right? So once he had that initial conversation and just sort of told me what was happening, uh, I think he started to develop a level of comfort because you know, there was something about someone listening to him fully, thinking about his whole story, not just looking at a part of it, but saying, I'm listening to you. I want to know the whole story. I want to tell as much of it as I can so that people understand what's going on. And he wanted nothing more than to have his story told. So I think that that was something that um, started to develop uh, pretty naturally through the course of having different you know, phone calls. He was in the transitional program and we spoke a lot on the phone. And then I came to, I actually went to Little Rock. And so being there in Little Rock, going to his home, you know, looking at, you know, where he's living, driving him to work, seeing what it's like for him to, you know, take this commute to get to work, talking to the people in his church you know, just meeting um, the people in his support network, going to these drug and alcohol meetings. So going to meetings with him, just really entering intimate spaces so that I could see and feel what it was like for him, right, to some degree. So I think that taking those, um, you know, sort of really intimate steps were important. And in terms of his name, he he definitely wanted to use his name. Mm -hmm. He was like... This is my story. This happened to me. And I want the world to know. And sort of on the flip side, I guess I was wondering if you could speak a bit about what it was like when you approached sort of these agencies that you talked about in your story, sort of like child protection and speaking with the prison um, and what you learned in reporting that and sort of like talking to those um, larger structures. Child Protective Services, they never, you know, go on record talking to journalists about cases um, in particular, or I've never had the experience. And anytime I reach out to them, they say, we can't speak about cases specifically. They can just give you general information or they can respond to questions, 
that talk about their process. So, you know, that was, that was expected. I didn't expect that they would go into detail. Um, and the same was true for the attorney that represented him, right? So she said that she didn't discuss her cases. So at one point I was like, well, how am I going to be able to, you know, how am I going to tell this full story? Mm-hmm. I need, I need their voices. I need the evidence. I need more than Clark's story. Um, and that's when I went about getting the transcripts. So the transcripts were a huge, huge sort of milestone. So then Clark had these these records. He had his transcripts. Mm-hmm. He was able to send me those. And then there was everything, right? So you see DHS, you see the attorneys. Everything is sort of there for me. So uh, that was a huge, huge milestone. That was a huge victory to be able to refer to his transcripts and see exactly what the judge said, to, to see exactly what the attorney said, to see exactly what the DH worker, DHS worker said, to see where people were, you know, not being honest, where people were being caught in lies. Just everything mm-hmm. was just laid bare in those transcripts. And I think that that helped out a lot because it, it gave a voice to the Uh, organizations that were not willing to speak on the record. You also mentioned that you started working on this story a long time ago. Um, And so I was wondering if you could speak to how the pandemic and COVID-19 and sort of travel restrictions shaped maybe the end of the story or like your reporting on the story at all? Yeah, this story started like far, far, far before um, the pandemic. I guess it was a number of things, right? So for Clark himself, facing homelessness and, you know, just sort of not, I couldn't even find him, right? So if you're homeless, you don't have money, you don't have a phone, there's no way to get in touch with him. So there were like long stretches of time where I just didn't know where he was or how he was doing. I couldn't get in touch with him, so I couldn't follow up on a certain aspect of the story. And then maybe he would, you know find me right he had my number tucked away somewhere and once he found a stable place or once he was in a shelter that allowed him to call out he was able to call me and give me an update um so you know that that posed a challenge and then obviously there were just challenges around um scheduling for magazines you know i think that with covid the idea was that the focus of all media coverage and all stories for a couple of months was only COVID. So it's like, if it's not a story that's related to COVID, then it's not a good time to publish. And then, you know, like, all right, we'll just wait. We'll just wait. We'll just wait. And then, you know, he gets rearrested in, you know, this, during this pandemic. And then you're like, how is this possible that you have been arrested in this pandemic? And now you're, you know, being thrown in jail for a failure to appear. You know, so just really thinking about what it means to be incarcerated during this time, what it means to uh, take that kind of that kind of risk, essentially, and why it's happening. I'm wondering what you hope the impact of this piece will be, especially as sort of conversations about abolition um, are entering more into the mainstream, how you're hoping people are going to um what people are going to take away from this story. Wow, I think there are so many things to take away. Um, I think the first thing is to really think about um, our child welfare system and how it, pe- it penalizes 
um, families of color, particularly black families and poor families, and what that looks like, right? So Clark's story is an illustration of what that looks like and how we uh, continuously as a country classify child maltreatment when in fact it's just poverty, right? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to bring up these families to a living wage? What does it mean to you know, recognize the work that people are doing to have a better life, right? So in the case of Clark, he's working at a place where he's being paid, I don't I don't remember how much, you know, about 10, 25, 10, 50, whatever it was, but it was above the minimum wage. And during his hearing, he was questioned about that. Like, well, how much are you earning per week? You know, as if, oh, that's not going to be enough to take care of your kids. But then there's the question of, okay, you don't want me to sell drugs. You know, you don't think that the legal job that I have that pays me $10.50 is sufficient and you won't do anything to help bring me to a living wage, but you want to take my children and give them to someone else and then pay those other people to take care of them. Right. I think that there's something very problematic in, you know, the exchange of money in that situation, right? If we want Clark to be able to take care of his children, there's a way that we can bring him up to a living wage. There's a way that we can make sure that he has the resources he needs to get on track, right? Whether mm-hmm. that is, you know, a transitioning program for employment, whether that is a housing program, so just really having services in place for people that are transitioning, people that are re-entering society. And I think that, you know, ending cash bill is a small but mighty thing that could take place in every state in this country um, and be helpful. 